You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was accordance to Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Someone died last night. Did you know? Have you heard? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Jesus is dead, to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. He breathed his last only hours ago, his final words a prayer of commitment to his Father. His life was not taken from him, but willingly, lovingly, forgivingly offered for us all. Jesus is dead. All that remains of him is a body, and bodies that have no life, no life in them, 
must be buried. But for a body to be buried, someone has to claim it. Someone has to be willing to show up and take responsibility for it. Someone has to pay the cost for the burial. Someone has to be willing to see, to hold, to carry the broken body of Jesus, shrouded by death. That someone was Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea is a bit of a mystery man. If we don't stop and enter Holy Saturday, we never hear about him. This is because the first time Joseph shows up in the Gospels is here, at the end, or at least what Joseph perceives as the end. Based on his name, we know he was originally from a city in Judea, just a few miles north of Jerusalem. From Mark and Luke's account of Joseph, we learn he was a respected member of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of ancient Israel, the same group of religious leaders who orchestrated Jesus' death. More on that irony in a moment. We are further told by Matthew that Joseph was a wealthy man. He was able to live in Jerusalem. He planned to die there. He had enough resources to secure a burial plot in a garden. Joseph of Arimathea was so rich, he owned a new tomb, hewn recently out of a rock. For his part, John only offers us one description about Joseph of Arimathea. It is this, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. We might pause here and wonder, if Joseph was a follower of Jesus, then why haven't we ever heard of this guy before? John provides the answer as he continues. He was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. Apparently, Joseph of Arimathea was in the Sanhedrin, but not of the Sanhedrin. While part of their body, he did not support their decision to have Jesus executed by the Romans. And yet, fearing the wrath, the reprisal of his colleagues, Joseph, to this point, had remained a follower of Jesus from the closet. But now, things have changed. Something in Joseph has changed. He's ready to come out of the closet and publicly align himself with Christ by approaching Pilate for permission to claim Jesus' body. Joseph does not stand alone in this request. Right beside him is another man named Nicodemus. This is someone we have met before. It was a few years back, early on in Jesus' ministry. Like so many Israelites, Nicodemus was curious about what Jesus had been teaching and doing. However, like Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee, a group opposed to Jesus from the start. So when Nicodemus first approached Jesus for a closer look, he did so under the cover of night. Nicodemus could tell Jesus was different. From everything Jesus was saying and making happen, Nicodemus was able to perceive Jesus had come from God. He just wasn't sure if Jesus was worth following in the light of day, at the risk of his reputation, his associations, his livelihood. At their first meeting, Jesus doesn't pull any punches with Nicodemus. Jesus invites him, instructs him to be born again, to have life completely transformed by following him. But Nicodemus doesn't get it. 
not the invitation, not the instruction, still uncertain, he leaves Jesus and retreats back into the darkness. That Jesus made more than an impression on Nicodemus becomes clear a little later on when the plans of the religious leadership to execute Jesus are just beginning to take shape. When his fellow Pharisees try unsuccessfully to have Jesus arrested, it is Nicodemus who stands alone, who stands apart in reminding them even the law of God declares a person is innocent until proven guilty. But when his colleagues then turn their mocking anger upon him, Nicodemus backs down and backs off. We hear nothing of him or from him until this moment, as Nicodemus stands side by side in solidarity with Joseph of Arimathea. Two disciples who once hid in the shadows now face the light of day, the day after their Savior had died. We have to wonder, don't we? We have to wonder if they both were there, somewhere in the mass of people gathered around three crosses. Did they listen to the taunts and jeers of their fellow colleagues from a distance, shaking their heads in mourning and shame? Or, forced to keep up appearances, did they stand among the religious leaders, adding their voices to the chorus of curses leveled upon Jesus in order to fit in with the rest of the crowd. Never underestimate the power of peer pressure, the temptation of conformity, the desire just to blend in with everyone else. We cannot know where Joseph and Nicodemus were yesterday or what they were doing. What we do know is they are here now, better late than never. Fear has given way, way to faith no longer scared for their lives, together Joseph and Nicodemus seek to honor the life the world has forsaken. Jesus is gone, and they cannot follow him, but they certainly can bury him. And so Joseph and Nicodemus boldly approach Jesus' executioner, Pilate, and ask for a favor, a favor that risks disfavor, a request that threatens their exposure, exposure as disciples of Jesus, a request that threatens their expulsion from the community, from the life they once knew. Just by being around a dead body, Joseph and Nicodemus make themselves unclean and therefore unfit to celebrate the Passover the next day with friends and family. But these two men don't seem to care anymore. Together, they have counted the cost of discipleship, of the price they might pay for this burial, and they do not flinch. They do not flinch from loving Jesus like he loves us all. What Jesus' teachings didn't quite do for Nicodemus and Joseph while he was alive, his death finally did. Together, they wipe away the blood and clean the body. Together, they lift and wrap lin layers of linen strips around Jesus as they also carefully add some precious spices. Together, they repeat this process until they are sure they have honored Christ in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Placing him in the tomb, Joseph and Nicodemus give Jesus what amounts to a royal funeral. It is more than fitting for the king of kings. 
But once the body is buried, once the services are over, what comes next? What else can there possibly be when God is dead and buried? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. comes next? It's a question we often ask, always looking for an answer we can occupy quickly. In a fast food nation where acceleration is seen as a virtue, if not a right, we want our transformation, our healing, our liberation, our Easter right now, immediately, if not yesterday. But Holy Saturday is the day that insists we sit a while with the question, Occupying the question of Holy Saturday prevents us from jumping to easy answers and false conclusions on Easter Sunday. Yes, we know Sunday's coming, but let's live in the moment where we find ourselves, the reality of Holy Saturday. There's a fancy word used in the church to describe these sacred days, these three sacred days of Holy Week, three days that begin on Thursday evening and end on Sunday morning, the word is triudum. Triudum. Triudum reflects the heart of Christ's story, which is the reality and turning point of our story as humanity. Triunum reflects the story of love, loss, and liberation. Between the devastating loss of Good Friday and the unexpected transformation, liberation of Easter Sunday, is the transition of Holy Saturday. We live a lot of our lives, most of it really, in transition, between holidays, between appointments, between visits, between jobs, between relationships, between commitments, between where we want to be and where we find ourselves, between surgery and recovery, between hurt and healing, between disappointment and hope, between life and death. Holy Saturday is between time. It mirrors the place in which we live the majority of our lives, waiting, hoping, 
praying, marking time. Holy Saturday is that moment in our lives where nothing appears to be happening, but everything around us is still moving. Holy Saturday is that moment in our lives when what is really real becomes clear to us, even as we sense there might be things developing that are still hidden from us, things we can only wonder if will be for our good or ill. Even though it appears lifeless, Holy Saturday is sacred time. This is because Holy Saturday is the time it takes for all authentic transformation, all genuine healing, all lasting liberation to take place. It is the time given to us to pause, to grieve, to confess. Holy Saturday is the time given for us to acknowledge our ultimate lack of control and to recognize that when God is dead in our lives, just how out of control our lives become. Holy Saturday is the time we need to finally begin to comprehend how dead we truly are, that we cannot ever, no matter how much we try, put ourselves back together again. But Holy Saturday stands apart from all other days and moments in our lives because it is here. We confront the fact that the only one who can save us the only one who can put us back together again, the only one who is in control is gone, lifeless before us. What comes next after this? What if there is no life after death? What if, in the end, this is all there is? What if there is no light beyond the darkness. Holy Saturday is the wall we run into that there is no getting past. Holy Saturday is the paralysis we experience when we have nothing left and our bodies just shut down. Holy Saturday is finding ourselves at the end of our rope and just grasping at anything to keep our head above water. Holy Saturday is when we've just begun to absorb the gut punch of death and then its sting begins to throb. Holy Saturday is where we hang in the balance between grief and confusion, exhaustion and shame, our sense of loss for what is missing and the frustration and pain of all that cannot fill that yawning void in our lives. Holy Saturday is that moment where we wonder and whisper in the silence, how long, O Lord, how long? If God is dead, will there ever be an answer to all of our troubles, an end to all our sorrows? Holy Saturday offers us no definitive answers, only questions and possible hints of something more. Consider this clue from the background of Jewish burial customs. Specifically, I'm referring to the Jewish belief that the flesh contains a person's evil deeds. Jews buried a body twice. First, they sealed the body away for a year in order to let all of the flesh rot away. This time was observed 
for the purging of all a person's evil deeds. A year later, all that remained were the bones, which it was believed contained the personality of the deceased. The purified remains, the bones, would now be buried with the rest of one's family, waiting and ready to receive the new body God would fashion for that person at the resurrection. If we believe Jesus was a perfect human being, if we believe Jesus was innocent, that there was no sin in him, then the burial of his body will not conform to custom. His flesh will not decay because there is nothing in Christ that needs to be purged. If the body of Christ is not going to break down, then perhaps we can expect something different to happen. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus will rise. And if Jesus rises, then there begins to be an answer for what comes next. If Jesus rises, maybe what we will receive is more than an answer to our question. Maybe, just maybe, what we will receive is a new possibility, the possibility that we can rise to. Jesus paid it all All to him I owe Sin had left a crimson stain He washed it white as snow Saturday? How are we to occupy this space in between? This space in between the limits of what we can do, of what we can imagine, and the possibilities of what God might do, of what God promises us to hope for. What do we do with Holy Saturday? There is only one appropriate response it's the only appropriate response because it's the one God commanded us to practice. It's the one response alone for which we were made on days like this. Rest. Sabbath. We spoke earlier of hints of what comes next. Have we forgotten what day it is? 
The story of our beginning, our Genesis, opens with a detailed and structured cascade of creation. Layer upon intricate and interdependent layer of life is spoken into existence by God. The penultimate stroke of the Lord's artistry is us, humanity, beings designed in the image of our creator and brought to life by the very breath of God. As creative moves go, it was good, very good, the Bible tells us. But it was not the end of our beginning. With all the work having been done, God then creates something without working. The Lord establishes the Sabbath. Our creator creates rest by resting. And as it's later made clear to us, God didn't do this for his benefit. Our creator doesn't need to take a break. God did this for our benefit. We have work to do, of course, but we were created to rest, to abide in our creator's presence in order to be able to do the work he calls us to do. According to the Jewish account of creation, the seventh day, the holy day of rest, the Sabbath, is Saturday. It's not a coincidence that that is today, that today is the Sabbath. But God is dead. Jesus is in the tomb. What work can he, will he call us to do now? We do not know. We can only wait upon the Lord. We can only rest in the work of his death and hope there is still life to be had. Could it be? Is it possible? The first Sabbath follows creation. The first Sabbath marks the conclusion to God's work of creation. It is the commencement of life as we know it. Maybe, just maybe, this is another Sabbath that follows God's work in Christ for us on the cross. Didn't Jesus say before he breathed his last, it is finished? Maybe, just maybe, this second Sabbath marks the conclusion of our lives as we've known them our lives as lived and died by Jesus. Maybe, just maybe, this rest we enter into on Holy Saturday marks the conclusion of God's work of a new creation, a new life, a better life we can have in Christ, an everlasting Sabbath where death will be no more. Maybe, just maybe, we do not know. We cannot know yet. But even though we stand before a sealed tomb on Holy Saturday, we can live by faith that the stone before us will be rolled away and a doorway that once served as an entrance will become an exit. We can rest. We can rest in the cross point of Holy Saturday the Eastering, the gestating that takes place in the thaw of the dead of winter that promises the new life of spring. And we can hope. We can hope in the sunset of Holy Saturday and wait for the Lord. 
Wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning, for the sun to rise out of the fertile darkness and for a new day, blossoming with the possibilities of resurrection to begin. Amen. Marks the conclusion of our service, save for, as I mentioned, an opportunity to sit and reflect as you'd like, but also, if you're willing, we're going to begin to bring in the cross and put it up for Easter Sunday. Again, thank you for coming today, and tomorrow I look forward to seeing you as well.